and welcome to Staff Picks, the podcast for movie nerds by movie nerds. As always, I'm Mario Lanza, and I am your host on our journey through the movies out there that just need a little more love. Our movie today, uh, this is going to be an interesting one because this is going to be the first movie I think we've done that really puts the concept of this podcast to the test. Uh, this is a movie that's virtually unknown. It's just crying out to be known, though. Um, it's just one, one of these things when you listen to me talk about it, you just kind of kind of be aghast that a movie like this actually exists. And it's just one of these things that's just wonderfully over the top and corny and inappropriate and cheesy, just all over the place. Just a uh, overall a wonderful piece of 80s trash cinema. And I am so excited we get to talk about it. The movie is Fortress, a 1985 Australian made-for-TV movie, which I know sounds like an odd choice for the show, but the, you'll hear about the long history of this movie. It was made for TV in Australia. It was later brought over to the U.S., and it became a huge staple on HBO, where they were running it like 10, 12 times a day for months and months and months. And it's one of these things that eventually just messed up a lot of kids because they saw this on TV. It's one of these first really greedy, realistic movies they ever saw. And then it later did get a theatrical release because it was so popular. So it wasn't strictly a made-for-TV movie. It eventually did show up in theaters. It's a movie that was fairly well known for its era, and uh, as we'll get into, a lot of kids saw this movie, a lot of people knew about it growing up. For some reason, I was not one of those kids. I somehow missed this movie, and it's very odd because I thought I knew all these weird, trashy movies from the 80s, and somehow this one just slipped my attention. I had never even heard of it, about it until a couple months ago, and in fact, our guest here is the man who turned me on to it, who eventually said, hey, you should talk about this movie, and I'm like, what's that movie? And so here we are today. And so, without further ado, let me introduce my guest today. Uh, his name is Rob Posh. He uh, writes a pop culture website, does movie reviews, just writes commentaries and essays on pop culture. Very funny guy, very well-spoken, very excited that he's here to join me today to talk about Fortress. Welcome to the show, Rob. Well, thank you. It's uh, nice to be in the room with you in this one-on-one -on -one intimate uh, conversation we're about to have. <laughs> yes, very very intimate here. Um, so, Rob, why don't you give us a little backstory, uh, who you are, how we got here. How the hell did you end up on a podcast in 2018 talking about Fortress? Well, that, that's one thing I did want to point out was I'm glad you mentioned that this is the first uh, sort of podcast you're doing where you're really going outside of the norm of your show. And I've never done a podcast before, so I think we make a good team when it comes to uh journey into something <laughs> that uh, neither of us have done with this show. Um, as for how I wound up here, well, Fortress is one of those just uh, – honestly, for a movie that I love, I didn't even really know the name or too much about it until probably 2000 or so when um, I decided to finally uh, you know, take advantage of the internet and Google or back then probably Yahoo or one of the other ones that fell by the wayside um, – the, the description that I remembered of this movie, because like apparently uh, lots of other kids of the early and mid 80s, no one knew the name or the, the plot. They just remembered scary masks in Australia. I Googled that and found out about it. And then uh, here I am talking about it. But I just figured kind of uh, like kind of the basis of this show is that more people know about need to know about this because it's just a. Uh, it's a very interesting movie, whether that's meant, you know, as a compliment or a backhanded compliment. It has a lot of you had to be there to it because what touched so many uh, kids uh, 
emotionally in a probably traumatizing way is that we were just all way too young to be experiencing this movie <laughs> and and to be experiencing it so frequently because I guess, um, you know, in order to make their money back, they were just airing this thing every afternoon, like right when kids were getting home from school, which is, you know, the perfect time for this movie. But yeah, we, there was a whole generation of kids out there raised on kidnappers as if the 80s kidnapping tension and frenzy wasn't high enough as it was. Uh, we had this movie in the back of our heads. Yeah, Rob's kind of uh, giving away the plot of the movie, which I don't mind because this is one of those we're going to need to give the plot away to just because, you know, nobody's going to know this movie. And uh, <laughs> and I have to give my history of the movie here just as a little background. Again, I, I thought I knew all these movies, all these corny movies, cheesy movies, trashy movies. And I remember there was a thread on Facebook on my wall a couple weeks ago. And I think it was like a poll. What's your favorite guilty pleasure movie? What's your favorite, you know, corny movie, cheesy movie, movie that you like and nobody else does? And Rob had mentioned Fortress. He kind of jumped right in there. And again, I had no idea what Fortress was. And as luck would have it, Rob had actually created a website where he'd done movie reviews and stuff like, you know, plot synopsis and he makes corny little comments and shows screen caps and stuff so I went to his website and I read all through it I'm like this is an amazing movie I have to watch this and although this does lead me to a question Rob are you the preeminent fortress scholar in the United States right now um well when doing my uh my research for this show which uh you know I, sh I don't mean to brag but it was at least probably 10 minutes of looking up other sites in case there was any other information I didn't know but I didn't see the other review that I found that was earlier than mine, in fairness, was uh, in about 1985, and it was the New York Times, and uh, they weren't too kind to the movie. So uh, I can probably say I have the earliest loving review of it. I, I, maybe I have that going for me, but I don't want to uh, make that claim and then some real fortress psycho comes after me because anyone <laughs> that obsessed with the movie, I, I don't want to mess with. So uh I'll just I'll just say maybe I was up there a little bit earlier, but even that review is only like three or four years old. So I guess that's old in Internet years, but uh, certainly not an expert on the movie or anything like that. It's just some like I said, the the childhood trauma. I decided to just put pen to paper metaphorically and and get the movie out there just to get more people either saying what a lot of people have said. I mean, I don't get a ton of feedback, uh, mostly because I mainly just write about serial reviews and no one cares about that. But no one tends to reply too often. And this I had people just crawling out of the woodwork, uh, just the same situation of mine of, you know, how the hell were we allowed to just sit in front of the TV and watch this after we got home from, you know, third grade? Yeah. I mean, before we get into it, I just want to reiterate what he's saying, that this is one messed up movie. And you will realize that as we're talking about it, that we're talking about what was theoretically basically an after school special for kids. They'd be watching this as they came home. And this is the movie they're given, which is just crazy with all these horrible, horrible, offensive, inappropriate things. But before I get into that, I just wanted to say... um. I had stumbled onto Rob's review a while back before I actually knew he was the one who wrote it. I was just looking for something on Fortress. And it's funny because he writes about this movie in the way that I write about things. Like, it very much feels like something I would have written. And this, this, the way he, you know, presents screen caps and just, uh, you know, just the way you just describe things in a loving yet mocking manner, it feels so similar to things that I would have written in the past about similar movies. And I just want to get people to maybe they can get a chance to see your website and your reviews how, how would they find your fortress reviews that's something they can just google 
Um, I always feel like I should go to the original um, coke-babies.com to shout out, but um, I did mirror my site onto WordPress uh, a few years ago as Diet Coke Babies, uh, no dash in that one, <laughs> um, mainly because I never actually learned to do any sort of web design or anything, and my website is hideous, so um, I, I try to redirect them to the WordPress one, but if you look up Fortress uh, 1985, I'm, I'm probably like top few results uh you know, that's one of the crowning achievements I've got going for me right now that uh, I rank high in fortress search results. But, yeah, um, it, it, you'll see a Coke Babies die, Coke Babies, something out there. Uh, Googling me, I don't know how uh, helpful that'll be uh, if you look up my name directly. What I, what I was getting at is that Rob and I take a very similar approach to the way we write about things and just similar sense of humor, similar style. In fact, I'll give a, a shameless plug. Many people know this already if you know me from Survivor. I have a website called the Funny 115, funny115.com, where I write about Survivor from a humorous vein. I take scenes and just kind of make snarky commentary on them using screen caps. Very similar to what Rob has done in his review of Fortress. So... I just think it's funny that two people with such similar styles and senses of humor are kind of like, we're like two ships passing in the night here. Like, we would never have even known each other otherwise, but here we are just uh, collaborating on a project that we both feel very strongly about and probably approach it from the exact same angle. Yeah, again, a movie like this brings people together. I think uh, it's got that going for it, too. Brings the souls together. Okay, so uh, so let's walk through this movie for people, although I will give a little asterisk here at the top of the podcast to say that, you know, in most cases, I want you to watch the movie first before you listen to our commentary on staff picks, just because I'd like you to experience it, and then we can maybe raise some points you may not have thought of, make, maybe get you to uh, think of the, the movie in different ways, but with this one, with Fortress, I think we're going to do it a little bit different. Because this is one I want people to kind of sit through this podcast because I want to I want you to experience us explaining the storyline to you and just the craziness of this movie. And I really want you to get the experience of your mouth just being agape, thinking, oh, my God, that's a real movie. And then I would like you to watch it afterwards now that we've explained it to you and you realize what you're going to be in for. And I think you'll probably get a richer viewing experience. And I will say there is a uh, version of this movie out there on YouTube. I believe I just saw one the other day. It's uh, it. There is a full version of Fortress on YouTube, but it's got uh, Czechoslovakian subtitles, I think. Um, it's That's true. Is that right, Rob? You've seen that one, right? Yeah, uh, I guess I don't feel too bad about people going to YouTube to watch it. I'm not sure uh, who gets the money if you actually pay for it. So, yeah, feel free to watch it on YouTube. But uh, I don't mean to brag. I do own this on VHS. So, uh. Well, I can actually uh, one-up that, Rob, in that when uh, you mentioned this movie and I wanted to get it for staff picks, I'm like, well, I need to get my hands on that. And I will say proudly I am one of the last five people who still subscribes to the Netflix DVD service where they physically ship a DVD to you. And this, for some odd reason, they have on Netflix. So I actually had the DVD in my possession a couple of weeks ago. Oh, I, I think this movie definitely uh, sort of fits better the VHS uh, vibe, uh, you know, just this kind of quality of movie. DVD seems like a little too intense technology-wise for this kind of uh, quality of movie. It's a little overkill, you might say? Yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's like putting one of those uh, 70s punk records on, you know, getting the flack version of it, you know, you don't need that. And, and again, just to re reiterate here, we're talking about a made-for-TV movie from Australia, very Australian, just the dialogue, dialect, the words they use. There's a, I think at one point there's like there's Australian children's TV characters, like the versions of Daffy Duck or whatever that they, the kids would have known at the time. It's really 
about as Australian as you can get without boomerangs being thrown around. And again, as Rob said, this movie came to the U.S. Kids were watching it after school. It was basically like an after-school special. Yet, here we go into a movie where people are going to be decapitated. They're going to be ripped apart. There's torture in this movie. Uh, what else? There's you know threats of women being raped. It's just there's so many adult themes floating around in this movie we're going to have to unpack in this podcast. Yeah, it's uh, and this was you know 1985, 1986, so Ninja Turtles had not aired yet, or you know we didn't have the Disney Afternoon and other things to come home to. You know when we came home, flipped on the TV. You know I had I think 13 channels. This was one of the things airing stuff at you know 3:30 p.m. So yeah, this got seen probably once a week, twice a week because there was just nothing else out there you know to watch. So it wasn't just the fact that. This was being aired. It's the fact that there was nothing else as an alternative, really, to watch. You had this or, you know, some other kind of maybe cartoon, but nothing that might really draw your attention away from getting to watch Fortress again. Yeah, so when you come home from school, you can watch Care Bears on one channel, or you can go to the other channel and watch men being decapitated and thrust down onto sticks that go up through their eyeballs. Your choice, little Billy. Yeah, kidnap children, you know, just bleak Australian outback, you know. You know which one you're going with. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, I had mentioned Fortress on my Facebook and Twitter page the other day. I said, you know, I'm doing this movie, this crazy movie from Australia that a lot of people might not know about. And I was kind of shocked that more people commented on it than I expected. I expected maybe one or two people to say, hey, I kind of remember that. But I actually had like five or six people say, oh, my God, I love that movie. That was so amazing. I can't believe you're doing that on staff picks. So like this movie might not be as obscure and forgotten as I keep building it up as. But again, I mean, I will say without a doubt, this is the most obscure movie I've done so far on staff picks. Um, I was just I'm just going to say I was heartened to see that so many of my already odd listeners already know about this already odd movie so i'm just saying but this is a tough movie to sell to people who have never seen it but i do think maybe we've stacked the deck a little bit in our favor here because a lot of my audience actually kind of knows this one surprisingly yeah and this one is going to be a little tougher sell too just due to the uh, the nature of uh the audio medium of podcasts because the kidnappers masks in the movie you know seeing that is what gives people so many of the kid flashbacks of Oh my God, that's the movie I'm thinking of. So, you know, we'll have to sell the masks a little bit, uh, you know, more strongly, even though uh, we, we, we can't show them, which is uh, <laughs> quite a shame with, uh, you know, just how traumatic seeing these things were to kids. Okay, so here we go into Fortress 1985, which uh, best can be described as Lord of the Flies meets Red Dawn meets an ABC after school special. Do you think that's fair? That's the best way to explain it to people? I Yeah, I mean, Lord of the Flies is going to be the thing that first uh, really pops out. But the Lord of the Flies is, is really only like the last like 10 minutes. The whole movie is it is kind of like a legit slow burn, like just bleak and creepy movie because uh, i mean this was uh, again 1985 you had you had movies that were you know where schools were involved but not really the, the threat hadn't broken into you know the classroom it was just school settings you know you had carrie but it's just a prom you're not you know attacking the kids within the classrooms themselves and the class and the school was still a safe place so for elementary school kids to be kidnapping victims and their protector their teacher is powerless and she's just along for the kidnapped ride it's just 
astonishingly bleak in that they just threw every sort of established, you know, place of protection for a kid and just said, nope, you know, not, not in this movie. Okay, so here we go. The start of the movie. Well, again, we're set in Australia. We're in this little tiny village, like a one-room town. Rob, do you have any backstory on where this was filmed or what location this is? All I know, I mean, I'm going to show my, my real American knowledge of other countries, and I just know it's Australia. I don't know anything. And, I mean, I have to assume most of Australia is not like this, and even in 1985 was not like this with, you know, kids from 5 to, you know, 14 in one classroom all sitting together and learning together. I have to assume this is, a you know, a bit of an outlier when it comes to their society, but – as for, you know, where it was made and all that, that I don't know. Um, pretty much my knowledge of the creation of the movie was that HBO just, they needed content. So they made this uh, movie themselves. I've heard different things, you know, HBO bought it from another company. They funded it in-house and all that. And that kind of stuff I don't care about. That's just, you know, that's details. It's really just the fact that. The reason this movie was on TV so much was that they just needed content to put out there, and this is what they had. You know, you think about that now, it's shocking. You know, HBO is, you know, it's got the premiere, these shows. You've got Game of Thrones, The Sopranos, you know, Arliss, you know, all, all the hits. Um, and back then, they just, they didn't have anything. They had that cool, you know, intro with the, the bouncing lights and the, the little intro song, but they just needed stuff to put out there, and, and this was one of them. You had Fortress and you had boxing, and that was yeah. pretty much HBO in the 80s. And Yeah, but not like the good boxers, just the, you know, the ones from, you know, that couldn't make it into, uh, you know, the college team. <laughs> Were they like HBO original boxers and the network created them just for these matches? Yeah, exactly. They were, they were simply paid just for the, the fight, and then they went back to, uh, <laughs> you know, the factory. Okay, so we're in Australia. We're in this tiny little town. Um, it's like kind of like Little House on the Prairie. It's... There's one school in this town for every kid in the village, and like the teacher sleeps in one of the family's houses, like a it's like a boarding room situation. It's again, it's just like like Little House on the Prairie a little bit, and they have this one room schoolhouse, and like every kid in the town is in the exact same class, which I don't really get how that works. I, I think it, um, Rob, you pointed out in your uh, review that like if we the, the opening scene of the movie, the teacher is like teaching them how to divide fractions on the blackboard, and like what little five-year-old knows how to divide fractions like what are, what are the little kids doing like coloring as the 18 year olds are doing like advanced calculus and math and stuff so anyway i don't really get how it works but it's just this one room schoolhouse for everybody whether you're four whether you're five whether you're 18 you're all in the same class yeah i mean it's either some pretty you know intense ap classes for these five-year-olds or or these kids are just sitting there staring into space while the older kids get taught uh i'm not not, not quite sure about that but not, I mean, not only is there a one-room classroom in this town, but, I mean, they've got this table that they show in the back of the classroom with, like, snakes and formaldehyde and animal skeletons and skulls just, just sitting out there like you would with a show-and-tell table. And that's even before the kidnapping and crazy stuff starts. Like, that's just how they're establishing this classroom is, is just a bunch of little kids learning about, you know, advanced algebra and learning about biology by looking at dead animals. <laughs> 
Yeah, and, and that's the one thing we want to get across to people when we're explaining this movie, that uh, there, there's this science table in the back of the classroom, and it's like it makes up a large part of uh, apparently what their curriculum is, what they study. And you see on the table they have like a jar, there's like a heart in there and a brain and like dead animals, there's a fox skull, there's like intestines. And apparently this is like a major part of their day that the teacher, her name is uh, Miss Jones, Sally Jones, that the, apparently the kids go out and kill stuff or find dead animals and bring them back and put them on this table in these little jars and these in the class studies them. So this will become a major uh, part in this movie, the science table. So don't forget that science table. Yeah, no, I mean, they're clearly establishing some deep subtext to this, uh, this plot by showing skulls. And I think they just wanted to put some skulls out there. Well, there's a, a storyline in this movie, a subplot right from the beginning where like uh, this one kid, Sid, uh, kills a fox who's in his hen house. He shoots the fox and kills it and brags about it back at school. And there's another uh, storyline right at the start where one of the other kids, I forget his name, where he like finds a dead animal on the ground and he kicks it and he spits on it. And the teacher has to scold him. She's like, you'll, you know, animals were not put on this earth, children to be mutilated and spat upon, which I mean, that's a good life lesson right there. But like right from the start, there's this fascination in this movie with like uh, death and dismemberment and dead animals. And again, it's just a weird, dark subtext. And it's going to carry over quite nicely once we get into the storyline. Yeah, although meanwhile, you know, the teacher's moralizing about being nice to animals, but it should also be pointed out that she's walking these two kids to school on active train tracks. <laughs> you see a train approaching these three people, and they step off maybe three seconds prior to where the train would have just splattered them, and, and this is the teacher. This is the authority figure, you know, who wants to teach them life lessons about being kind to animals, but... Yeah, just take him to school on train tracks. <laughs> What's funny is I didn't even notice that until you pointed it out in your review on the on your web page that, uh, yeah, that's literally what happens at the start of the movie. The teacher is walking with the kids to school because, you know, they all live together in the same houses. And she's literally walking with them on an active train track with the train coming right behind them the entire way. Like, it's freaking the train dodge from Stand By Me. And she at the last minute, she's like, okay, we can step off the track now. And like you said, this is the role model. This is the adult. Yeah, and with this budget, you, you know, you, that wasn't, I mean, that's not a practical effect or that's not, you know, any sort of special effect. They just said, hey, you know, probably should step off now. Otherwise, you know, we've lost our lead actress. <laughs> Yeah, they had like the uh, the backup actress, the stand-in, just off to the left, just off camera, just in case the lead actress gets plowed by the train on the first take. So it's like, you either get out of the way on the first take, or we bring in the stand-in. Your choice. They figured if, as long as they sound alike, hopefully you no know, one's going to notice the difference. Yeah, it's like, uh, who cares? It's HBO. As long as she's got dark hair, fuck it, throw her out there. Yeah, just, just make sure she sounds Australian once uh, you put her in the next scene. <laughs> So we go in the classroom, and again, all the it's the school where all the kids are in the same class. You have little five-year-olds to 18-year-olds, which, is, again, seems odd to me because, like, there's a bullying thing where, like, this big old 16-year-old's picking on a four-year-old. So, again, it's just a weird situation, but okay, we'll go with it. And we're in class, and one of the kids um, looks outside, and she says, uh, what does she say? She goes, like, I see Mac the Mouse outside, which... It feels like that we're supposed to know who that is. Like, is this like a, uh, it's like an Australian, maybe children's TV character they would have seen on like a kid's show or something. Um, you, Rob, being our, uh, our, our uh, Australian cultural expert here, was that, was Mac the Mouse an actual Australian character like kids in the, in the 80s would have known? 
I don't know for sure. I have, I did actually look that up because I was, you know, kind of wondered because, uh, in the credits, it's like Dabby Duck and Mac the Mouse and, um, uh, I forget what the, um, what the cat's name was, but yeah, I, but they were all kind of like lower cased as in just, you know, not officially licensed characters or anything. I wasn't sure if it was like Daffy Duck and, you know, Mickey Mouse ripoff or what, but, um, yeah, looking up the, the, the Dabby Duck and Mac the Mouse did not really lead to anything. So I think it was made for this movie, but again, my knowledge of, you know, Australian kids cartoons is somewhat limited, so it could be out there. <laughs> These are like off-brand Looney Tunes characters, like HBO yeah. came up with their own. Yeah, it's like, it's like the GoBots version of, you know, the Transformers of, of Disney and all that. All right, so these kids see all these men like running around outside in masks and these, uh, you know, like cartoon masks, and the kids are like, "Oh, look, it's it's beloved children's characters." But no, it's a uh, what they see is a bunch of kidnappers running to storm the school. They're coming and they've, you know, they're going to take all the kids hostage. They have this big plan, and then you know they're going to round everybody up and like hold them for ransom, which apparently was based on a real event. Did you know that, Rob? This is actually like a real thing that happened in Australia, and they they wrote a book about it. Yeah, the um the movie's based on the book of the same name, which was inspired by um an actual pretty much similar kidnapping and not kind of inspired in the way that, you know, you'll say Texas Chainsaw was inspired by Ed Gain when, you know, they're just kind of taken a little bit, but it was pretty uh pretty similar from what I've heard and what's uh not I, I hate to use the word funny, but one of the kidnappers from the first kidnapping got broke out of prison or was released and then just went back and did it again and got arrested again. So, uh, yeah, I guess he was going for the sequel before he realized they were even making a movie of the kidnapping. <laughs> yeah, and that's that, that that background, knowing this is based on, you know, at least partially based on something that happens, just makes the further events seem even wilder. But I'm going to assume, you know, the latter half of this movie did not happen in that real kidnapping case. Rob, I have to give you credit here, Rob, because on his uh, website, in his review of the movie, Rob had pointed out there's this great jump scare here where uh, the teacher is standing right next to the window, kind of teaching the class, just a normal day in class. And like right behind her, this guy pops up in the window and he's like holding a shotgun and he's wearing this big, creepy duck mask. And it says, like, it just comes out of nowhere. He just kind of spins into the frame. And it's just kind of goofy and creepy and jump scary at the same time and surreal because the mask is so weird looking. And you would point it out in your review, and I, I totally agree with this. Like, I could see how this would be like nightmare fuel for a little kid, like a little six, seven, eight year old watching this movie for the first time, where, like, you may have never seen a jump scare before, and all of a sudden there's the creepy duck mask guy popping into the frame. Like, that's the kind of thing, the image, the kind of image that would stick with you over the years, I would think. Yeah, I'd have to figure for a ton of kids, that's probably, you know, the first ever jump scare that they would have ever experienced and you know jump scares can be scary to this day because just due to the nature of them being surprising but if you'd never even experienced one to begin with and like known that a jump scare was a thing that existed i i can't exactly claim i remember where i was sitting in the day it happened when i first saw this but that little spin he does from outside of frame of the window to inside of the frame of the window that I vividly remember seeing as a kid, and that's one of the things that I remembered most vividly about the movie was uh, 
not even the Santa, which proved to be the biggest villain of the kidnappers, but the duck was the one I remembered most vividly because of that jump scare shot. Yeah, and that's the big standout thing that people would remember about this movie if you've seen it before, that you've got these four kidnappers and they all have these very distinct masks on as they're coming in and storming and you know threatening the kids. And you got a duck and you got a mouse and you got what is a a cat. And then there's the the, the leader, he's wearing a Santa Claus mask and they call him Father Christmas. He's the scary one of them all but that's the big uh selling point of this movie the kidnappers and the masks in fact i think rob even on your your review on your, on the website you pointed out that when this movie first came out like the poster and the advertising tools they would focus on the kids and the teacher in danger and like their attempts to be rescued and that was like the cover art but when this movie became big and they re-released it and put it in theaters and stuff the poster art all featured the four kidnappers because that's what people know about this movie it's the guys in the masks that's the drawing point yeah i mean because the mo- the movie's poster like the official poster is just that glorious i mean not even b movie but like c minus movie just that cheesy 80s art poster and i mean that kind of gives you an impression of what the movie's going to be like when it comes to the campiness but yeah on the dvd release in some country yeah they just put the four masks on the top because they knew you know, this is what people are coming for. This is what they're going to know. Yeah, and I can just see, like you said, when you were trying to look up what this movie was in the 2000s, like you didn't remember the title. You just probably Googled Kidnappers, Duck, and Santa Mask, right? Yeah, and then there it was. You know, IMDb, Fortress. So the kidnappers rush into the classroom and they're like, you know, frightening the kid and trying to herd them all up into a little circle. And and again, none of this is played for laughs. This isn't like a goofy, funny scene. There's no silly music like it's kidnappers just screaming at these kids and this teacher yelling, you know, shut up. We're going to hurt you. Get out of get out of here. And they like uh, we're going for a picnic. Ha ha ha. So they like herd the kids all up and then throw them into this big van. And you know that right from the start, we see the teacher here, Miss Jones, doing her best to protect the kids. She's like, uh, she's circling back and asks, "Can I bring the first aid kit?" And she like takes a little knife and shoves it into her purse or boot or something. And, like right from the start, that's her first instinct to protect the kids. Although right here, right from the start, I will say this is one of these. Uh, you see the scenes here where I'm talking about where it's really odd that kids would have been watching this movie when it was shown like after school and stuff like right from the start, we have the kidnappers looking at the teacher, Miss Jones. And one of them says, I reckon the teacher will be good for a gangbang. And I'm like, I don't think that's a line you were hearing in a lot of children's after school specials back in the day. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm trying to remember the last time I heard that in, you know, DuckTales <laughs> or anything like that. I, I can't place it. Um, Again, there could be one that I'm forgetting, but I'm pretty sure I don't remember any any other shows I was watching at, at that age talking about that. I'm thinking maybe Degrassi might have been the only one talking about that. Yeah, they, they well, they got into that pretty early on, and they moved on to more controversial topics after, like, the first season. Yeah, and again, these kidnappers are terrifying. Like, they're just scary, especially the Santa mask guy. He's got this Santa mask on. The kids refer to him as Father Christmas. And he's just really terrifying. And he never takes his mask off until the end of the movie. You just see him, the guy behind the mask. And Rob, you, you had pointed this out, which I love in your review, that like the actor who is wearing the Santa mask has the mask pushed way up against his face and he's got these huge eyes. And so like, it's got this effect of like, like the Santa having eyes that are too big for his face, which is just a, an odd surreal effect. That's just, it just, the minute you mention that now it's, that's the only thing I notice when I look at Santa, his ginormous eyes, the whole, the whole vibe of father Christmas is just, 
it's 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 wild because you know just them being kidnapped having them storm the classroom take the kids take the teacher that alone is terrifying to a kid but these aren't just kidnappers going about their job doing their thing they're quiet just just get in the van kind of thing i mean as father christmas mainly but they're just they're antagonistic to these kids they're trying to just legit scare these kids and freak them out they're not content to just shuffle them into the van they're trying to like traumatize these kids and yeah father christmas is the wildest of the bunch because yeah his eyes are these cartoonish size completely filling the eyes of the mask making him look like this strange claymation person because (laughs) you know you don't get that peek into the actual person when you see the shadow behind the eye hole and the fact that it's santa it's santa claus screaming and traumatizing little kids and just seeming to enjoy it at, at times it's it makes for for quite a total picture for this character yeah and just to uh you know further drive home the point that this is an odd movie that kids were watching like you know you have these the father christmas and these kidnappers openly lusting after the teacher and implying they're going to do stuff to her but then there's this 16 year old girl like norell in the class and the kid and the kidnappers are openly lusting over her too talking about the things they want to do to her and I'm like whoa this is quite inappropriate for a children's movie i would say yeah and what's funny just talking about you know maybe their intentions is that as many times as I've seen this movie, I don't even know if it's even ever brought up of what they were hoping to get out of this actual kidnapping. Yeah. I don't know if it was mentioned, you know, they were going to ransom them or what. So they just kind of figured that was a detail. The the audience wouldn't care about of, you know, why they were doing this. They just figured we just want to watch it happening. Well, they actually, I did actually catch this when I was watching it this last time this afternoon, where they do kind of mention in the background what's going on, that one of the kidnappers says, well, you know, we got nine kids here. With one phone call, we can make a lot of money. So it is implied this is a, you know, hostage for ransom situation, but they never actually pursue it at any point in the movie. That's like the one time they mention it, and from here on out, it's never mentioned again. Yeah, I guess. Well, yeah, they're, I guess they're slipping in those details for the people really, the cinephiles really paying attention to all the background conversations. Well, at least I learned something, so I'm happy about that. Yeah, for like the uh, the Roger Eberts and all the film students out there watching this movie. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so these little kids are like terrified. They're crying and screaming, and you know their lives are being threatened. They're all in the back of this van, and there's you know again there's a lot of little kids in peril. There's kids with guns pointed at them. And again, this is a cultural thing. This is something they don't do in movies anymore. You're not really supposed to show little kids in peril. There's a lot of little kids in peril in this movie. And uh, so the teacher, she comes up with a plan. She's like, well, you know, they, they probably haven't counted all these kids. They may, If one of them's missing, the kidnappers might not realize it. So Miss Jones comes up with a plan. She's like, you know, the kids have to go to the bathroom. Can we stop, please? And the kidnappers grumble, but they eventually do it because they don't want the, you know these kids pissing all over their van. And so they go outside, and the teacher immediately pulls one of the kids aside, this redhead kid, Tommy. And she's like, you know, Tommy, hide in the bushes, and then we'll all drive off. And when we're gone, you go run and tell the police. And, you know, you can see the teachers brainstorming ways to protect these kids and for them to get out of the situation somehow. And it's a great plan. I mean, it should work. And Tommy does everything he should, and he hides in the bushes. And she goes back, and they sell this illusion that Tommy's not there and everyone drives off in the van and it's wonderful because you know she may not have the best supporting cast around her miss jones because within 30 seconds one of the other little kids blows the plan they're like hey where's tommy (laughs) yeah it's you don't want your 
your complex plans of escape to rely on, you know, the wits of six-year-olds, if at all possible. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's quite clear the teacher doesn't have the strongest supporting cast around her. But uh, uh, this is where we get this really intense scene of a little kid being in peril here. And again, there's a lot of these in the movie, but uh, the kidnappers are furious that this kid has been has escaped them and is back wandering around the bushes. So they come back to the bathroom spot and one of them grabs this little kid like uh, Toby, this little five year old, and they grab him like by the scruff of his neck and fling him outside the van and they're holding him up. And one of them holds a shotgun to his face and they're like, you better come back here. We'll blow this little kid's head off. Yeah. And. The, the shotguns were – those were sawed off to the point of being uh, probably more dangerous to the shooter than the person being shot at. I mean everyone's getting hurt if that goes off. But yeah, I mean I just like that they even make the kidnappers – even the weapons were just terrifying. These weren't just little pistols. They were sawed off like something straight out of Doom 2 type shotguns. And yeah, being held to the, the side of a kid's head – you know, I know that's kind of run of stuff you see in every family drama, but, you know, they really pulled it off with just making it actually seem like it wasn't just a threat. And, you know, they figured, hey, we've got this many kids. Why not just off one for to kill some boredom? Yeah. And that's uh, something I really want to uh, establish here as we're talking about this movie is that. There's this sense of like rawness and evil and just uh, amateurishness about this movie that it doesn't feel like a big glossy Hollywood movie. And like, you're not entirely sure they're not going to kill the kids. Like they might off a kid in this movie. You're not entirely sure. It just kind of has that tone about it. And I know we did a uh, podcast earlier on Cloak and Dagger where, you know, I had a great a lot of fun talking about the scene where the bad guy threatens to blow a little kid's kneecaps off with an Uzi at the end of the movie. Fortress is basically that Uzi scene, but for 80 minutes. Yeah, just the whole vibe is, it probably isn't going to happen, but it's certainly not where you're thinking, oh, well, these, you know, everyone's safe. You know, the teacher's safe. You know, she's sort of a kind of a popular actress. They're not going to kill her off, and they're not going to kill the kids. And, you know, even though that's likely going to be the case, you're never sure, just especially with this bleak atmosphere this movie has just coding it. And... You know, it kind of talking about when you brought up one of the other movies you talked about, um, you know, it just kind of had that Arlington Road thing where in the end, who knows, maybe the bad guys could win. You know, this a movie is starting to feel like one of those movies where, you know, that could happen. No one ever feels safe. Yeah, and it's so low budget and just low key. The whole movie just like has a made for TV gritty feel. And I know that's what they always said. That's what made the Texas Chainsaw Massacre such an effective horror movie because it like felt like a home movie. It didn't even feel glossy. It felt like you were just kind of watching it like a documentary, like almost like a snuff film. Like you almost feel like someone's going to die in this movie. And again, just the, the oddest little gritty tone that just permeates this entire movie all the way until the end. Yeah, and it's it, I know we've uh, kind of brought this up a couple times, but yeah, because Texas Chainsaw is my my favorite horror movie by far, and it's mainly because the things I love in horror movies are when they make you not necessarily they don't scare you, they just sort of make you feel bad. Like while watching it, and when you're done watching the movie, you just sort of feel sick and dirty and sad, but not necessarily scared. And this movie has that same feeling of just. You need to take a, a strong, hot shower after this because you just feel disgusting from this whole atmosphere. And even at the end, you know, nothing nothing gets better necessarily. Yeah, you're never you're never uh, really left with any sort of um, 
you know, family hug moment at any point where they all learn valuable lessons. I mean, they do learn lessons by the end, but <laughs> probably not the ones, you know, you're going to see on just the 10 of us. Yeah. And just, uh, you know, telling people to hang on until the end of this podcast, like this movie does not really get any better. There's no huggy moment. There's no happy feeling at the end of this movie. It's It's got one of the uh, the more nihilistic, I think would be the, the proper term, <laughs> endings that I can think of in a movie in recent memory. Again, it doesn't get better. It doesn't get happier. It just will permeate this and get worse and worse and worse. And you kind of leave the theater just kind of in shock at the end. And again, this is a movie being shown on TV after school, likely being watched by six-year-olds. And one thing when you, you just mentioned talking about being on cable and we keep talking about it being on HBO, I'd also heard a lot of people saying that like their UHF stations would air this movie. So I don't know if eventually HBO just kind of said, all right, you know, give us 50 bucks and you can air it, you know, 100 times if you want. But it, this wasn't just at a certain point contained to HBO's daytime, you know, after school kids block. It was <laughs> just airing in random crevices of, you know, TV dumb and it was just it was out there you know it, it you didn't have to tune into hbo to be exposed to this movie it was like a virus it spread it was like uh, captain trips in the stand yeah this is just you know the hbo is the trojan horse and then they were the kid they got infected and went to the other channels and it just kept spreading okay okay so here we go so the kidnappers have retrieved all the kids and they have them all in the van and this is where they drive to their to the biggest set piece in the movie where we see the kidnappers master plan is that you know we've uh they're gonna they found this big underground cave and we're gonna toss all the kids down there and we're gonna roll the boulder over the entrance as if it's like freaking easter and jesus is in there and so the kids are all trapped down in this and as the kids are all stuck down in this ginormous cave that presumably this is where the kidnappers will go out and, you know, make their demands and go get their monies. So, <laughs> again, this is a the big set piece in the movie, this huge underground cave, which is surprisingly pretty nice and roomy and like it's nice down there and you can walk around and they have, it's like bigger than their schoolroom, I think. And uh, what I love about this movie is that the director loves this cave set so much that he uses it twice <laughs> is that they, they try to pass it off later in the movie as a different cave, although it's clearly just the same set. Well, they had to get their money's worth. They spent a lot of money to build that cave. Yeah, so so anyway, the the kids are down in this cave, and it's like pitch dark, and the kids are crying, and you know we have little kids here. A bunch of most of the, half of these kids are like little uh, grade schoolers, and so the teacher's trying to do her best to keep the their spirits up, and she suggests, well, you know, we could eat our lunch, have a little picnic, which I love because this will become like a recurring plot device in the movie. Every time something stressful comes up, she'll suggest they have a little picnic. There, you know, there's multiple times where it's just, you know, they figure they should probably maybe find an authority figure or just keep running. But, yeah, no, they just decide they need to have a little kip and just, you know, take a nap now, kids. You know, we need to rest up or, you know, let's have our, our late afternoon snack. I know we already stopped to eat lunch, but, you know, there's nothing else important going on that we need to uh, focus on right now. Our lives aren't in danger right now, so it's picnic time. Yeah, we need to focus on eating our ants on a log, and then we'll get back to running away from the crazed, shotgun-wielding masked marauders. Yeah, so the kids are down in the cave, and they're, like, eating their lunch, and just, you know, they're trying to calm their nerves. And this is where we learn two very important things about this group. The first is that one of the kids here, Derek, the school bully, he smokes. But the good thing is that he has matches on him, so we can light a fire. Yay! 
So they uh, they take all their school books and they gather them into a little pile and they light it to make a bonfire so they can have some kind of you know a heat source and vision in the cave. And I think uh, you, uh, Rob, had pointed this out on your website that lighting school books on a fire is not really the optimal fire source for like a uh, a bonfire. Like they're gonna burn what three minutes max. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was cathartic for them, but yeah, it's probably not gonna, you know, really give them too much to go off visually. And I also like the lesson that they uh, are, are teaching kids that no one really likes this uh, this kid, but since he has matches because he smokes, he becomes a bit of a little hero. So just let the kids out there know that maybe picking up smoking, you know, if you're not that popular, you know, that's something you could always try if you need to boost your uh, your your standing in school. Okay, so so we lit the books on fire, and now apparently we have this roaring bonfire that's going to last for like five hours, which I don't know if books just burn differently in Australia. Is that like the uh, the toilet water that goes down in a different direction because you're in the southern hemisphere? Maybe books burn differently there. I don't know. I'm not going to call BS on it. It, just, it. it is what it is. And then uh, the second part of this thing that we learn is that Apparently, one of the girls has uh, the salad dressing in her lunch, and it's, like, oil-based, so it's flammable. And so our teacher, Miss Jones here, who's, like, MacGyver, she's the big science nerd, she's like, well, we can dip our uh, shoelaces in this oil and light them on fire and make these little lanterns, these little lanterns out of cans and stuff. So, like, it's kind of a cool little moment, but uh, it does lead us to a question here, like, who the hell is eating salad dressing that's that flammable? Yeah, she was on uh, Atkins from an early age with, uh, you know, just... (laughs) 85% 85% oil to vinegar ratio, whatever's going on with that, because, yeah, that was, uh, and it was a lot of it, too, so, you know, you got to learn to appreciate the flavor of the vegetables, you can't just drown in salad dressing like that, but, you know, it, it was fortuitous for him. Uh, so is that the way it works in Australia, is Vegemite like napalm? It, from what I've heard of how it tastes, it, it certainly could be weaponized, I've never actually had it myself, but... I've heard uh, acquired taste is putting it very mildly for that, but I'm not, I don't plan on finding out about that. So the teacher calls them all over. She's like, you know, come children, we uh, let's sit together, sit around the campfire, and let's say uh, talk about what we're gonna do here. And again, they're all trapped. There's a boulder up above them. We can't go anywhere. And the teacher's like, gather round. We're gonna have a council of war. Those are literally the words she uses. Council of war. And what's wonderful about this is that you had pointed this out, Rob, in your review first. So I'm just stealing your joke here, but. Apparently they've had councils of war before because nobody asks her what that means. They just, all right, time to have one. Yeah, I, I mean, if I'm in, say, one of these kids, you know, if I'm in second grade and my teacher tells me that, you know, I'd probably say, you know, oh, we're going to go to war or, you know, are we going to have to fight or, or, you know, what does that mean? No, but now they just sit down, they gather around, they take their places, they know their military rankings within the classroom, apparently, but you can't knock them. They were... Their, their, their students are prepared, you know. You've got your uh, fire drills. You've got your council of war drills. They're, they're ready for any event that might come along in their classroom. Okay, so the kids have had their council of war, and they come up with a plan, and the plan is the boys are going to go up and move the boulder out of the way. So they go, yeah, let's move the boulder, and they go up, and they can't move the boulder. So, all right, new plan. So they apparently have a second council of war, and this is the new plan is that the teacher and uh, one of the oldest boys, Sid, they're going to go explore the cave. So the two of them, Miss Jones and Sid, are going to go wander off, and uh, now this is going to be fun because this is where we get one of the more disturbing scenes in this movie, which for this movie, that's saying something. Yeah, you got to give him credit, though, that, you know, 
there's a lot of disturbing things in the movie, but they're all disturbing in different ways. They don't keep going back to the same well, you know, so they decide, you know, we've already had these kids just brutally kidnapped. But now we're going to have sort of a, a coming of age scene where the teacher, you know, even though they're kind of fighting for survival, she wants to keep her clothes dry. So she decides to get naked in front of one of the, the older boys. You know, he, you know, he's 14, 15. So maybe in the outback, I don't know, maybe that's allowed. But yeah, so she just uh, strips off and decides to go swimming around looking for an escape. But uh, yeah, I think uh, the, the boys day probably got a little bit better at that point. Yeah, and again, the uh, teacher in this movie is played by the actress Rachel Ward, who's like probably about 25 in this movie. She's very, you know, attractive, tall, young, just this hot teacher, the stereotypical hot teacher among these teenage boys. And so literally she's standing there with this 14-year-old boy and she's like, oh, there's an underground lake. I'll go strip and then I'll, I'll swim out of here and I'll see if there's anything out there. So... There's this scene of her stripping her clothes off while Sid is trying not to look, kind of looking away. It's all kind of awkward, kind of Mary Kay Letourneau-y here. And uh, (laughs) she swims out and goes under this, like there's a ledge, and she has to swim under it, and she ends up coming outside. She realizes there's an escape from the cave under the water. And she's like, all right. So she comes back, and she's naked while, you know, this 14-year-old is trying desperately not to look at her her boobies. And... (laughs) And then she goes, here's the plan. We'll take all the kids and we'll bring them over here and we'll have them all stripped down to their underwear and we'll all swim out one after another out to the outside. It'll be great and we'll get out of here. So here we go. A long, gratuitous 10-minute scene of kids stripping down to their underwear and swimming out underwater in slow motion. Ew. Yeah, and again, my my lack of knowledge about this area might prove me wrong, but I'm not sure why these would be the strongest of swimmers these these kids you know i I don't know how near to the ocean they are or a lake that they could have developed their skills but you're asking these kids under a highly stressful situation you know just hold your breath for three to four minutes you know we'll get out of this so i I just i think that's a big kind of a big ask of a seven-year-old kid to just calm down you know i know we're being kidnapped we're trapped in a cave but you need to put all that aside you know you need to compartmentalize right now and we need to focus on the probably going to kill us swimming under a cave threat that we're currently in the midst of you do have to you know you do have to feel i guess a little bad for these kids they're not having the best day and then shot with a shotgun or drowned you know these are the kind of choices that you know you're inspired to think about as a little kid watching this movie and you know it brings up some interesting uh topics to talk amongst yourselves at lunch the next day after watching this movie of hey did you see that movie what do you think what would you rather get shot in the head or drown or what would your per- preferred way of dying in this adventure so <laughs> they got the kids had options and you know it's important to give kids you know sometimes choices and it lets them develop a little better <laughs> yeah i remember having that uh, exact conversation with my friends when i was eight at school i'm like what would you rather do get shot or drown and they're like i don't know i was too busy watching the gummy bears cartoon yeah, and then um, the next day, no one would sit near you because their parents wouldn't let them. <laughs> well, I wonder how Miss Jones was able to uh, draw these kids into this world of certain death. What was she like? Uh, hey, kids, we can go swim under this rock outcropping, and we'll hold our breath for five minutes, and it'll be difficult. But you know, when we get outside, we can have a picnic and maybe a nap. Yeah, and I'm not really sure if they're going to take a nap, but I think the picnic is probably out of the question. But I mean, they might have brought you know some food with them in that five minute underwater swim because you know it is important to you know always 
you know, stay fueled with some snacks. So she might have, uh, she might have really uh, had her priorities straight and brought some food with her in that swim. But uh, I don't think there's anywhere for really her to hide any food and what they were wearing. So. Okay, now, are we going to spend any time talking about how disturbing it is watching scene after scene of little grade schoolers swimming in slow motion in water as the camera zooms in on their slow-moving bodies? I'd prefer not to. I thought, I mean, that was the one of the things that stuck with me as a kid was how just bizarre that scene was. And then when the first time I saw it when I was older, I was, it was just straight up. It was the mental equivalent of when, you know, you see someone a cartoon character with those three dot ellipses as their only response. That's basically what I was thinking in my head was just, okay. Uh, they, they, and they, and you think about it too. They, that wasn't the first take. They, they did that a lot of times. The cameramen had different choices of how to film that. And that is what they thought was the best way to present that scene of just this strange sort of uh, blue lagoon esque, just creep fest in, in the middle of the movie. It, it kind of comes at, at the center point. So it's a, uh, oh God, I almost, I almost had climax, but that would have been a really bad way of putting that. It's just this, it's this terrible oasis in the middle of the movie where you want to, you want to get back to the more cheery parts of, you know, the gun toting kidnappers and away from the more just creepy stuff. But yeah, no, I don't. I don't need to. I don't need to talk about the the cave scene anymore. I, I think we've uh, we've really sold the scene for the for the viewers. I don't want to be too crude about it, but you know this movie was a favorite on Michael Jackson's video shelf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, had to go there. There were a lot of girls in the scene too, so I'm not sure <laughs> if that was appealing. Yeah, it's just a very uh, disturbing, gratuitous scene that we really should not be talking about because it's so odd. Yeah, especially for uh, five, or, five or so minutes that we've spent on it. <laughs> it probably should have just been like an asterisk that we were like, oh, by the way, this happens. But uh, we'll leave you to your own devices when the movie co- when you're watching on the movie. Yeah, thank God we didn't talk about it. Yeah, no, it would have been weird if we brought it up. <laughs> Okay, so the kids have escaped the cave, they've all swum out, they're all shivering and naked, and they, you know, they put their clothes back on, and they're just tired and everything, because, like you said, it was like a five-mile swim, apparently, I don't know. But anyway, the, uh, so the teacher, I think, suggests here, uh, what is it, it's getting dark out, and she's like, I think at this point, what, we should have another picnic, I think, is her, her first move? Um, no, I think they take a nap. You know, they, they need to prior, you know, they need to, don't want to eat too much, you know, well, I guess... They weren't swimming anymore. I mean, it would have been weird for them to have another snack before they went swimming. That would have been irresponsible. But if they were done swimming, they could have eaten. But no, I'm pretty sure they take a nap after, you know. They need to split up the breaks. Yeah, because when you, uh, the kidnappers are after you and you've escaped their lair, the first priority at that point is take a nap. Especially when you're swimming underwater in a cave and clearly you've gone miles underwater on one breath. So you must be very far away from the kidnappers from where you've. (laughs) exited the cave you know probably at least you know a good 25 30 feet you know to safety okay so after their nap they uh wake up and you know it's dark and and the teacher sees off on the horizon there's a farmhouse it looks they can't tell how far away it is there again we're in the middle of the australian outback so there's nothing going on but the teacher sees this uh farmhouse she's like Let's walk, kids. And so they all start walking to the farmhouse, and it's like a 10-mile hike or something. It takes forever for them to get there. 
And then they finally arrive. It's the middle of the night. They get to this farmhouse, and they're so excited because they've been rescued. And uh, there's this old farm farmer and his wife who uh, live in the house. And the wife opens the door, and Miss Jones, the teacher, is like, "Oh, thank God, we've been we've been kidnapped, and there's these terrible kidnapper rapists after us, and they're gonna they're gonna harm us. And please, please, you're our only hope for safety. We're just so excited to see you. We made it." And and just as she says that, the door swings open a little further, and behind the uh, kindly old farm lady, you see Father. Christmas holding a gun to her back that apparently the kidnappers have come here first and they've been just waiting for the teacher and the students to come walking right up to them and uh, Miss Jones is like oh shit because here we go right back in the hands of the kidnappers yeah I mean it's it it would normally be one of those kind of contrived horror tropes of oh you know you come upon the one house where the kidnappers are you know stationed but like you mentioned this probably was the only house within you know 20 miles in this area so you know, you got to give them credit that, you know, they probably would be stationed up there. Although I'm not sure why they were, you know, staying where the kids were instead of just, oh, we'll leave them in the cave and go off to this farmhouse and just hang out for the next three, four hours instead of <laughs> accomplishing anything. But, you know, it advances the plot. Okay, so so the kids are rounded up. The kidnappers round them all up in the living room, and and at this point, the uh, kidnappers start demanding some food. They all talk to the old farm couple. They're like, "Make us some food," and they, you know, there's four little place settings for the kidnappers. And at this point, one of these little idiot kids says, "Oh, I hope we get some extra spuds," which uh, can only lead you to believe that perhaps this is the special ed class. Maybe these aren't the brightest kids in the Australian school district. Yeah, and right after the kidnappers specify that, you know, that the old lady needs to put four place settings on the table, uh, you know, four being the number of kidnappers. And yeah, they, yeah, you got this kid expecting some potatoes and all that. But, you know, he hadn't had a snack in like 45 minutes. So it is in fairness, he probably was starting to get a bit peckish. So. Okay, now the movie's going to ramp up in intensity. And again, this was already a pretty intense movie, but what happens in this scene is there's like a little kerfuffle between the old couple and the kidnappers. One of them shoots the old man in the chest, and then we hear a second gunshot later that the old woman's been shot. In the middle of the scuffle, the fish tank breaks, and all these fish go flopping under the ground. And all the kids are herded up out and again into a circle and they are thrown out into the barn. The couple has a barn. The kids are locked out there. And now they're just in uh, full on panic mode. You hear the kids screaming, crying. It's just a chaos because now the killers, the kidnappers have finally killed somebody. And you just hear in the background the kidnappers yelling at one another. Now we've done it. Now we've gone too far. We've killed somebody. We weren't supposed to do that. So again, it's just a uh, everything has been ramped up in intensity here. And now the kidnappers again have tasted blood and the kids are in uh up shit creek without a paddle at this point basically because now they're stuck in a barn and the kidnappers know that they probably have to kill them yeah although i should mention in all this chaos of you know shotgun murders and uh kids experiencing their first uh you know death in real life probably the uh, oldest girl does feel fit to uh she needs to pick up all the flopping goldfish that are on the floor that got knocked over when you know the shotgun pellets were flying. So she, you know, she's still going with that uh, everyone has a right to live thing. And, you know, I'm not sure what she did with them after, put them in her pocket, you know. And they, they, they could have been the next snack for, uh, you know, in the next hour or so, whenever their next scheduled snack time was. But Picnic, yeah. Yeah, but she does have her priorities straight, you know. She's, a, she's the most mature of the group, so she was she was thinking ahead. So the kids are now screwed. They've seen somebody killed. They're trapped here in the barn. They've got one kidnapper staying with them, uh, just watching over them. I forget which one is this. Is this like the uh, the cat guy or the duck guy that's watching them? 
Yeah, that's the cat. That's uh the one that, you know, they've been, you know, perving on the teacher and this girl the whole movie. So I guess the students decide to finally just lean into this option. And she uh starts flirting with the cat kidnapper. And the cat kidnapper, you know, just thinks, oh, well, this is perfectly normal. I've been harassing and, you know, traumatizing these kids for the better part of today. And now she's just suddenly... It's a very accelerated form of Stockholm Syndrome, and maybe she's into me. She doesn't know what I look like because I've been wearing a mask the entire time. But, you know, it still works, you know. These are lonely guys, I guess. They only have each other. So, you know, a little 14-year-old girl might be a might just be what the guy needs. I don't know. But that was their plan of escape was to uh, have the 14-year-old girl flirt with the kidnapper. And uh, <laughs> oddly enough, it seemed to be not the worst plan based on how it uh, turned out. Yeah, so like you said, this is the point in the movie where the kids really turn the tide here and they decide to turn the tables on their kidnappers. And instead of the kidnappers hunting them, the kids are going to be the ones doing the hunting. So like this is the whole turning point in the movie where the uh, the oldest girl, Narelle, goes and sits next to the cat kidnapper. And she's like flirting with him and sidling up to him. And she's like, you know, oh, you're so handsome. Oh, oh, your gun is so big. Like just stuff like that. And uh, the so the kidnapper, of course, being rock stupid goes oh wow i just i just killed some old people and i threatened her friends uh, she thinks i'm hot he's like all turned on and so as he's being turned on by norell some of the older boys sneak up and whack him in the back of the head with a log they knock him out they take his gun and again this is the turning point in the movie where the kids are now going to be the ones in charge yeah and uh there they you know the, the numbers get a little bit more evened out because uh as they uh leave the barn they find out that not only are these kidnappers bad guys, but they're apparently just truly horrible people because they've murdered one of their own, um, you know, which seems like kind of a, a breach of conduct or something. But what we find out, well, you find out if you look on IMDb, but the person that the kidnappers have murdered is the duck kidnapper. And you don't just see his body with a shotgun blast to the chest or the head. You see duck kidnapper leaning against a fence and then the neck slowly starts to uh what's the best term um not be connected to the head anymore (laughs) and you just see a decapitated head wearing a duck mask with blood pouring out of the neck again just to remind you that this aired at 3 30 p.m for anyone to watch but you know the kidnappers they were so inclined to move along with their kidnapping even though uh, the deaths were starting to pile up and this duck kidnapper was not on board with the murder they decided you know they're still going to move on but they still wanted to give him a very elaborate horror movie murder you know not just a shotgun blast i don't even know how the murder was supposed to have happened because his head wasn't cut off because it was still kind of attached so they uh they did something, and basically, I guess they thought it would um, look good on the camera, so they just uh, cut about 95% of the neck and then let gravity take care of the rest. Uh, but it should also be pointed out that the duck kidnapper was played by the guy who played Bennett in Commando. So when Bennett is the voice of reason in your group, the rest of the group is bad news when that's the guy trying to talk everyone back off the ledge. And uh, he also was not too worried about being typecast since he also went on to star 
seven years later in another movie called uh, Fortress. <laughs> yeah, to sum up what Rob just said, it, there's this very graphic death here where one of the kidnappers, you, you don't really catch this right away until maybe you watch it. It's kind of a background. You kind of hear it in the background scene where one of the kidnappers doesn't want to do this. He wants to leave. And so the other kidnappers are like, okay, well, let's see how that goes. And they decide to decapitate him. And it's very, very graphic. Like, it's not left to the imagination. You literally see the head slowly detach from the body. Again, I would say probably the first decapitation a lot of six- and seven-year-olds saw in a movie. Just a wild guess. And what's what's awesome is that this isn't probably even in the top three most disturbing scenes in this movie. What's also uh, extra disturbing is that, like you mentioned, the sort of the rationale for why the kidnappers killed one of their own is left in the background. If you're not paying attention to the background dialogue between the kidnappers, you're going to see this dead kidnapper. And your first thought is probably going to be, oh, one of the kids did this and this is the end result, because based on the evidence they show you, that's the logical thought you know you're not going to think that the kidnappers did this unless you're really paying attention to the background dialogue so yeah you're going to see this head kind of moving away from the body and think wow these uh <laughs> these kids are uh, sure amped up from hitting a guy with a log to this Okay, so here's the uh, thought process of an eight-year-old watching this movie for the first time. Oh, look, there's kids. Oh, they're having a picnic. Oh, a nap. Oh, look, the kids are sitting around a campfire singing songs about a pig. Oh, it's... Oh, there's a guy with a duck mask. What What happened to his head? What? What? Why did his head get separated from his body? <laughs> Yeah, and this was the pre-DVR days, so a lot of times you might just flip this on in the middle of the movie. You could just be changing channels and, you know, just poof, you, you, you stumble upon, a, you know, a duck head, you know, with blood oozing out of it with absolutely no context. <laughs> so I'm not sure if the context makes it better or worse, but yeah, so you, uh, just to point out that, you know, you could also just be stumbling upon flipping your channels because that's what you did back in 1985. You didn't have an on-screen guide. You know, you might not have been one of the fancy people who subscribed to TV Guide, and you just flip channels on that little hard plastic channel changer, and bam, you, uh, in my case, it was Channel 6. You pop on Channel 6 to HBO, and you might just stumble upon a blood-oozing, duck-mask-wearing dead head. Just another, another day in the lawless 80s for uh, youth entertainment. Yeah, I never personally experienced uh, Fortress as a kid, so I never had the pleasure of being traumatized. But what's funny is that if you go to YouTube, you know, this movie's on there and people comment it all the time. This is the scene that they comment on over and over and over again. This is the one that really traumatized people when they saw this movie. It's the brutal decapitation. You'll see it mentioned over and over and over. This is the one that really stuck in their craw all those years. But again, you, you have to give this movie credit. You you can have all sorts of different people. You can have, you know, the type of person whose favorite part of the movie was, you know, threatening sexual assault on a teacher. You could have the favorite part of the movie is decapitation or just brutal, realistic kidnapping of a classroom. You know, they, they, they give you options on what your favorite part of this demented movie is. You don't all have to be part of the same camp where it's like, wow, this movie's crazy. Can you believe they did this? No, you've got A, B, C, A, you've got A through Z of options of what the most potentially traumatizing scene or concept to a little kid is in this movie. 
<laughs> so you could be team decapitation or like team gangbang, and either one would be a valid choice. Yeah, and I mean, this is a conversation that seven-year-olds could have, and overhearing this, you know, if you're a teacher walking around the lunch table and you hear kids talking about decapitation, gangbangs, spear impalements, uh, you know, 14-year-olds seducing their elder kidnappers, uh, and there's nothing the teacher could do. You can't get the kids in trouble because uh, they're just, uh, they're talking about what they've seen. You know, they're not being, they're not being rude, they're just, uh, they're just trying. They're trying to learn. <laughs> Little Billy mentioned gangbangs in class. That's a demerit. <laughs> yeah, no, but then, then you know, you've got the fortress excuse, and you know, at the very, you know, maybe you might get an hour's detention, but you got to get that knocked down. That's a plea bargain, you know, because you could use the fortress defense. Okay, we're gonna rush ahead to the ending here because that's the fun part. That is the really disturbing part. Let's let's go ahead to that one, Rob. Well. The funny thing you're saying, rush ahead, it's literally the next scene. I mean, the next scene goes from this nighttime awakening to, um, they don't, they don't slowly ramp up and be like, okay, well, maybe we can get a little more violent to protect ourselves. I mean, the cliche is going zero to 60, and this is just going zero to, you know, 250 miles an hour with, um, the next, uh, group of scenes, which, you know, we've already mentioned Lord of the Flies a few times, but, Lord of the Flies almost seems like a lazy comparison when you remember the fact that Lord of the Flies was relatively restrained by comparison to these final scenes. I mean, you've got kids with war paint on, which I'm sure we'll touch on, but you've got kids with war paint using jungle Viet Cong-esque warfare. <laughs> but Lord of the Flies was not this just... uh Gleeful. Yeah, and yeah... Th- well, I mean, you have the Jack side taking fun in it, but, you know, the rest, they just, they just wanted to survive. But, you know, these, uh, these kids and their teachers, they, um, they, they seem to be into it. Yeah. So let's, uh, get to the ending here. So the kids have escaped the barn that they were trapped in. They've run off. And again, there's only two kidnappers left. You have like, uh, what, Father Christmas and the mouse guy. And so the teacher takes the kids and they run up into these rocks, like this, uh, big rock outcropping. It's kind of hard to describe. It's like Death Valley a little bit. And they're up there and they basically barricade themselves into these caves. So they make a fortress, hence the title of the movie. And so they're like, tomorrow is going to be this big showdown and the kidnappers are going to come after them and the kids and the teachers are going to have to, and the teacher are going to have to fight. And again, this movie is only 80 minutes long. So we got this big showdown coming up here between the kidnappers and the teachers and these suddenly bloodthirsty kids who are dying to fight back and all excited about it. And again, the next morning comes the uh, kidnappers show up and you can hear them. They're out in the woods and you can hear them taunting the teachers and the kids. And and uh, here's some of the wonderful lines. They say, uh, tonight we're going to have a hell of a party, bitch. That's one line they say. And then the other one where they say, uh, we'll be back for the one with the big tits, which I'm pretty sure is not a line you'll find in most Pixar movies. Uh, a Disney expert may want to back me up on that. So the kids and the teacher are trapped inside and and they're like, you know, this isn't fair. And then some of the older boys are like, let's make this fair. And so this is where we get this uh, wonderful montage. Like it's basically like an episode of the A-Team where the kids are going to spend the next five to ten minutes making weapons where the teacher, you know, she's a science teacher. And she's like, you know, I can show you kids how to make an impaling spear that can go right through a man's eyeball. And they're like, yay. 
yay and so we get this big weapons making montage which is fantastic and they're making like spears and axes and they use rocks to make these clubs and they're making like a like Viet Cong death pits like these spike traps and they're all gleeful and happy and it's such a fun happy little weapon montage and it's just a uh, coming of age story where, ch where children are war are learning the most effective war tactics and here we go it's going to get super bloody from here on out what's also fantastic is that i mean there's basically been one night that they could have had any preparation they've got one night and one morning and they've already established that you know they know a good night's sleep is very important so they're not going to skimp on any sleep at night so they probably only got a few hours to prepare and meanwhile they show what i mean on low estimation 40 to 60 of these punjai sticks just right out of the ground you know they uh all with these very sharp points that you know were not half-assed these were worked on with um with love you know I, I think would probably be the best term for how this was prepared but yeah these kids they did not need to be talked into it uh they've already had plenty of council of war experience probably they probably were able to get the weapons built so quickly because i mean this is probably something they've worked on and um i don't know would this be arts and crafts or home ec in a in the outback classroom but i'm sure this was not their first time building spears um in their class Okay, so here we have this big showdown here, and this is where the kids are all, you know, super excited that we're going to have this uh, standoff with these evil kidnappers, and they have, you know, fun discussions like, you know, when he falls here, it'll puncture his kidney, yeah, and stuff like that. And this is where we, uh, the, it starts off with a big, long, extended chase scene. What happens is uh, the older girl, Narelle, she's got to wander out into the woods. I think she has her period or something, and the kidnappers see her, and they start chasing after her. And this is where we get some more of these uh, delightful little bon mots from the kidnappers where they're yelling stuff to Narelle like, uh, show us your tits, miss, which, I mean, they are saying miss, so at least they're using some etiquette. It's nice there. But again, not a, a phrase you hear in most uh, delightful little family movies. <laughs> and then uh, we end up in a scene where the mouse kidnapper ends up in hand-to-hand -hand combat with the teacher, with Miss Jones. He ends up, in, you know, they're, he's becoming by the fortress and they're fighting and she's got a knife and they're trying to stab each other. And the kids, of course, right out of a Looney Tunes cartoon, of course, are, are all of a sudden on the ledge above and they pry this giant, like, Wiley E. Coyote boulder and it rolls down the hill onto the kidnapper. And the mouse guy's like, ah, and he cries out and he falls into one of the little Viet Cong death pits and he's impaled. And, like, you hear him screaming and crying as his body slowly slides down these wooden spikes and he dies a slow, agonizing pit death, which is a... Uh, Oh, that's a fun, lighthearted scene. Yeah, and it shows me when you're talking about this Looney Tunes-esque boulders they're dropping on them. They don't. The kids don't seem to care if they kill the teacher, too. I mean, you're not. They're not aiming these boulders, and the teacher and the mouse are, as you said, hand-to-hand, -hand basically fighting. So boulders are not known for their precision <laughs> when it comes to hitting one target. So, yeah, the kids are just like, ah, whatever. If, if we take out one of the kidnappers, there'll only be one left. We can go without the teacher at this point. You know, they've already started calling her Sally. They don't even uh, consider her the teacher anymore. She's a, a peer, I guess, but uh, or collateral damage, you know, however you want to think they're looking at this. But they're just going for it. You know, if the teacher bites it too, uh, oh, well. And then, yeah, with the mouse's impalement, um, it should be pointed out if you – 
don't actually feel like watching the movie or don't get around to it. They don't just show him with some sticks, you know, and some blood. They show, and it's a pretty cool effect, especially for this kind of level of movie. They show him just slowly descend onto these sticks as it comes more and more out of his chest. Probably the only disappointing part is that uh, the mouse's face is a... He doesn't really have a tough face, so um, you're kind of surprised he made it to second to last uh, Survivor, but... He does not go out pleasantly. I mean, a boulder to a pit of spikes and some Mortal Kombat-esque death. Of it's a, it's quite a sight. And not to drive this point too, you know, far into the ground. But again, you know, a kids movie airing in the middle of the afternoon, showing someone like do you. I mean, you remember the controversy about Mortal Kombat? They complained about decapitations. They're complaining about people falling into pits of spikes. Um, I'm sure, you know, you give me a few minutes, I could think of even more comparisons to this movie that would make sense. But you remember the uproar about Mortal Kombat, and yet, you know, this movie just slid by. I mean, I guess they figured if it's an Australian movie, it's sort of like foreign cinema. So the kids were being artistes. (laughs) Okay, so the kids have killed for the first time now, and they're singing and dancing and laughing, and it's just... It's kind of disturbing how easily they've slipped into the role of bloodlust, if you think about it. But anyway, what has happened to the mouse guy is nothing compared to what's about to happen to Father Christmas. And this is the scene, the signature scene of this movie, if you will, a uh, movie that's already disturbing. We're going to go even more over the top here. And again, this is the scene that really drove this movie home when I saw it for the first time, and I totally understood why Rob recommended it for staff picks. This is the moment right here where, uh, Rob, I'll, I'll walk us into it, and I'll let you comment on it after I kind of explain what happens. You know, Father Christmas is the only kidnapper left. He just uh, discovered his mouse buddy dead at the bottom of a pit. He's furious. He's, you know, firing his shotgun willy-nilly at these kids. And he rushes into the cave where they're hiding. And he immediately trips. They've set a trap. He trips over this trap. He falls face first into the fire pit. And you think, you would think that falling into a fire pit would be the worst thing that could happen to you during the day. But that is not the case, because here comes every kid in this movie. And it's funny, I kind of liken it to you like the end of a play, when the uh, cast all comes out and takes a bow. Well, (laughs) here comes every kid in this movie that's been tormented and taunted and threatened, and they all come rushing out to this uh, man laying prone in the fire pit. And this is the, the bludgeoning scene, where they take all their axes and knives and you know rocks and they just start crushing this guy and stabbing and just just poking at him and like it goes on for like a minute and a half of them just killing and overkilling this guy like to the point that it goes on like 30 seconds beyond it being cute and it starts getting kind of creepy where they're just gleefully laughing and you know singing and it's like a like a charles manson cult killing almost and oh boy is this a fun scene yeah, the uh, Father Christmas pretty much just becomes the printer from Office Space with <laughs> the that low-angle shot of just them releasing everything. You know, for probably the last 90%, there's no point to it, like you said, because it probably the fire did a number on him. You know, I can't imagine that's great. But, yeah, he probably, uh, you know, was knocked unconscious pretty early in. The rest was just uh, gravy. There's the teacher and the kids sharing an experience together, you know, growing as people. And, you know, sometimes you just need to have a nice uh, big event like this to help you grow, you know, and become better friends and become better people. And 
you know, they they went for it. They 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 took their chance and they turned this guy into a hamburger. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It's like there's very few movies I have ever seen before where like a little five year old is stabbing a corpse of a grown person gleefully while laughing just with war paint smeared all over their face. Pet Cemetery is the only thing I can really think of that comes anywhere near that with a little gauge at the end. But yeah, it's just I know the point of this movie is to, to, you know, to point out that, you know, violence is bad. And by the end, the kids have been corrupted and they're just as bad as the kidnappers. And I get that message. But like the way it's presented is such overkill and just such a gleeful, evil, creepy way. And then the next morning, we immediately cut to the scene at the school. It's the next day and, you know, the teacher's been rescued, the kids have been rescued, everybody has been, it's a happy ending, we're all back at school the next day, and and the teacher is sitting there reading a story to her class, and what she's reading them is Beowulf, and the passage she's specifically reading, we cut to, is that she's talking about how, you know, and then Grendel was torn apart, limb from limb, and his sinews were removed from his body, and he was dismembered, and I'm like, whoa, like, what is the point of the movie at this point, what are we talking about here? Yeah, meanwhile, the kids are probably thinking, what a wimp that guy is. That's all they. That's all he could do? You know, we did a lot worse than that. <laughs> now, okay, now, now we get to the cherry on top of this movie. This is the fairly fun part. The inspectors, these police inspectors show up at the school the next day, and, you know, they're trying to figure out what exactly happened and what these kids went through. And we cut to the classroom, and Miss Sally, of course, is there with the kids, and there's the science table in the back. Don't forget the science table in the classroom with all the dead things on it. And the inspectors are talking to the teacher and they're like, you know, this is a great story and we're so glad you survived and everyone had a happy ending. But, you know, <laughs> so we we found some inconsistencies in your story. And she's like, oh, and I, I think the, the inspector's like, yeah, why did the main kidnapper end up with 8000 stab wounds all over his body? <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, I think it probably raised some alarm, you know, and a little bit of a, you know, the old detective spirit was probably awakened when they came upon this uh pulp you know but which was probably a human being at one point but since there was probably no flesh eaten you know it wasn't an animal attack it was uh it's just you know just boys being boys you know i think you could just chalk that up to uh you know youthful indiscretions but yeah i mean i guess in fairness they're doing their job and and now the the kids are doing their job of giving these uh detectives these absolute death glares of you're coming to talk to us because you think this person was just annihilated with boulders and rocks and sharpened sticks, and the two of you think you can uh, come in with the ten of us. We've already we've already killed four kidnappers. We're we're not worried about uh, a couple uh, little wimpy looking guys in suits, but yeah, just the 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 one the older boy the um the older boy just gives one of the guys this this absolute gangster look just cocks his head to the side and just blank emotionless look and it's that's almost one of the scarier parts of the movie is just the look this kid gives it's just cold-blooded and then of course to uh break the you know you don't want to you know this movie's been well balanced you know it does want to spend a lot of time you know lightening the mood you know throws in some comedy because you wouldn't want this movie to be uh bleak or anything like that so they do one fine little haha moment when Tommy pops into the window, the window we first see the duck kidnapper pop into, wearing a freaking Santa mask, jumping into the window. Meanwhile, uh, it should be pointed out, this 
boy Tommy was previously in the movie shot with a shotgun in the shoulder uh, when they were fighting the cat kidnapper. So it's not like Tommy shouldn't have learned his lesson. So this kid is just stupid. <laughs> so, but yeah, so he pops up in the window wearing a Santa mask, thinking the kids are just going to have a jolly laugh instead of forgetting the fact that these are now hardened murderers who are going to be on edge in their classroom for the rest of their life. And somehow he metaphorically and probably almost literally dodged a bullet um, when he takes his mask off. Yeah, so, I mean, not all the kids learned all the lessons they should have um, in this movie when this boy, boy Tommy does not fully have his survival instincts fully kicking into gear with um, him thinking that's the best joke to play approximately two days after the fact. So the phrase too soon would probably be accurate here? I think too soon is probably um, uh, probably that you're not even in the same stadium as too soon with this. <laughs> OK. OK. So anyway, just to sum up the last five minutes of the movie. So the kidnappers were torn apart. They were dismembered. The inspectors found these piles of hamburger up there in the, in the caves and they're like we can't even explain some of these wounds like animals don't do that what what did you kids do to these guys and the kids threateningly surround the inspectors and just form a circle and just glare them basically give them like the uh, the fu stare and the inspectors realize kind of what's going on they're like all right peace out okay thanks bye well we're good and they take off and so uh you know, all his all is right in the world. It's a happy ending, and then Tommy does his little jump out with the Santa mask, just to uh, jump scare everybody, and we all have a big laugh and we share the moment. And really, that's the end of the movie. Oh wait, but there's one other thing I forgot about this part. Speaking of cherry on top of the Sunday, here we go. So. Miss Jones sends all the kids out to recess, and she kind of nods happily, knowing that they survived. They banded together. She did the right thing. They all learned an important life lesson. And as she leaves the room, we pan over to the aforementioned science table. Remember I said that was important? We go to the science table, and this is the last lingering shot of the movie. We focus on a jar in the middle of the science table, and it's got a heart in it. Here's what happened. The kids not only killed the kidnappers, they destroyed Father Christmas, they turned him into pulp. At some point, they ripped his heart out, they put it into a jar, and now rests as the centerpiece of their science table, and will theoretically be the center of all their science curriculum for the rest of the year, Father Christmas's heart. End of movie. Yeah, and you also have to consider the fact that, you know, it wasn't like the kidnapper died in the playground you know and they thought hey wouldn't that be a an interesting anatomy thing to put it in our science lab they brought this heart back to their classroom meanwhile they're just wearing the rags that they're now wearing that they've been in for the past day you know they don't have a backpack to put this in so someone ripped this heart out oh circling back to the mortal combat kind of like kano's fatality rips their heart out puts it in their pocket and brings it all the way back and then they clean it up um you gotta actually you're, you gotta be kind of surprised that the heart is in that good aesthetic condition considering the beating the guy took i mean the heart's looking in pretty good shape so that was a small bonus for them i guess probably the only reason they didn't put this guy's head in a jar to display was because it was probably just too battered so they had to go with the runner-up of the heart but yeah that's that's their addition but it does fit in pretty well with the rest of that table. I mean, you've got snakes and fox heads and skeletons and 
just miscellaneous things that looks like, you know, that back room of, in, of Leatherface's kitchen where it was just miscellaneous things in jars and he's going to turn some of those skeletons into his next lamp. But that's, yeah, that's their science department. So that's where, that's where we're at with the school's uh, curriculum. Okay, uh, I got two things to say to that, uh, to your point. A, the kids probably had a thermos with them. Uh, If you remember, you know, they had their lunches and the snacks and stuff. And if you remember from the uh, commercials, the thermos keeps the cold beverages cold and like the hot soup hot. So they could have taken the heart out, put it into a thermos, and it would keep it at the uh, appropriate temperature to retain its uh, integrity and structure. So right there, I think that's the loophole you're looking for, how they got the heart back. B, the second thing I wanted to point out is that the kids are probably kicking themselves because, you know, they brought the heart back and that's cool, but they could have also had a head because uh, you remember the duck head was already separated from the body, the kidnapper. They could have easily just gone back to the farm, circled back, pick up the head, which again, the kidnappers had already done all the work. They had separated it from the body for them and it looked like a nice clean cut. They could have brought that back, put the head in a jar, and then you have the double whammy. You got the heart and the head. So I think the uh, Miss Jones is probably kicking herself there with the uh, missed opportunity. Well, they might have thought that would have been even a little too obvious for those detectives. I mean, you, the duck head might be back at, at the house, you know, or just, you know, cut instead of a, a deer's head mounted on the wall, you've got a, a duck head. So it kind of fits right in with the hunter's motif. Uh, and yeah, I, I do have to get I do have to, you know, admit my mistake. I didn't actually think about the thermos, but I mean, I guess in fairness, that doesn't tend to come up in any of the uh, the advertising of <laughs> uses for the product i i don't know if i've ever seen that one mentioned but i don't necessarily read all, all the really the guns and ammo type <laughs> magazines so that might have been more of a you know another audience's uh advertising campaign <laughs> yeah that's more like the uh the fishing and stream back pages yeah or <laughs> yeah they're the kind of magazines that uh i i don't want to go near <laughs> and again i um I said at the start of the podcast, I just hope when people are listening to this episode, even if you haven't seen this movie before, I'm hoping you're just kind of sitting there listening to Rob and me talk about it. And I hope your mouth is just like agape, just thinking like, this is a real movie? Because that's uh, le- this is why I was so tickled when Rob brought this movie to my attention, because somehow it slipped under my radar. I didn't know about it. And I watched it and I learned about it and I read his review and I'm like, this is the perfect type of movie for a show like Staff Picks because it's so crazy and bizarre. And like I said, I even had one friend who knows this movie wrote me when he heard I was doing it. And he's like, that Fortress movie, like you watch it and you don't even know if it's real. You're like, am I watching? Is it a dream? Is this really happening? What is this storyline? And like I said, it's just one of those movies that it just sticks into people's memories and lodges there. You just remember, even if you don't know the title of the movie, you might have seen it as a kid on basic cable, just on TV, on UHF channel. And you remember kidnappers and duck masks and like a heart in a jar and this crazy the crazy just Australian world that it exists in. So that's the one thing I want to get across to people. Like this is an almost perfect movie for a show like Staff Picks. And one other very important thing, which uh, I'm distressed we hadn't talked about yet, was that 80s cheese-tastic, that synth music that we'd be playing in, especially in the, the earlier half of the movie when they were really trying to build the tension. But when you want to talk about how bleak this movie is, that specific kind of 80s synth always makes me think of Henry portrait of a serial killer in how out of place that synthy music felt. And it felt very much like that in this movie where it just felt out of place and 
made it even more off-putting that you're just watching these awful things happen and you're just hearing this best attempt at a Casio stressful melody line, um, you know, that kind of that Terminator, you know, that apparently like three-year window in the middle of the 80s where synthesizers were thought to be stressful and people quickly realized that it really wasn't. It was just sort of awful. <laughs> and that synth sound really just gives this movie a, a family tree connection to some other movies where you wouldn't think, again, an after-school movie would have as you know thematic relations. All right, now, here's the thing that really bothers me about this movie. And it's not the thing you think it would bother me, like that it's disturbing or like it's uh, manipulative and exploitive. No, I'm fine with that. No, what bothers me is that they never did this movie on Mystery Science Theater or like riff tracks. And that kills me because, you know, I'm a big Misty fan and this movie would have been perfect for a show like Mystery Science Theater. And it's because the tone of it is just all over the place. It it just jumps all over the place. It can never settle on whether it's, you know, a drama or a horror movie or this whimsical fantasy or this this adventure family movie. It really can never even settle on what it's trying to do. And it just bounces back and forth all over the place. And then you get to the end and like you don't know what the message of the story was. What's the theme of this movie that? violence is bad that you know that the the heroes can be just as bad as the villains sometime that power corrupts evil corrupts like what exactly is the theme of this movie you don't know the only thing you really know when you come out of this movie is that i just sat through fortress and that was a trip and i want to go find somebody to talk about this movie with yeah i think that's probably maybe my favorite part of it is that the lesson is not you do what you take to survive because at our core, we're all animals or, you know, some legitimate theme like that. They learn nothing. <laughs> they're worse at the end of the movie. And now worse than that, they're empowered by this. They're threatening, non-verbally threatening authority figures, the law. So these kids have not only learned nothing, they're actively at their core now worse people <laughs> than they were two days or three days prior and considering that the kids learning these lessons are they're just starting out in life they're they're four five six years old or the teenagers might take these lessons and learn them differently but they've all just learned a terrible lesson and clearly have shoved that deep into their core and made it a, a part of their foundation from there on out anyone comes in you know the electrician comes in to say hey you haven't paid your bills in three months they're gonna make a circle around him, glare at him. The electricians in for a, a very rude um, and terrifying surprise when he tries to enforce any laws on these people from there on out, because they're just savage animals now. And it's a shame Fortress two never came out because we could have seen a, they probably would have been the one attacking innocent people in the next one. So you're saying the uh, kidnappers would have done society a favor if they'd murdered all these children. I mean, I, I know it's uh, probably not a great stance to uh, be of the opinion of, you know, the kids probably should have been killed. But I'm going to just leave myself as in the middle on that argument <laughs> to, to try to play it safe. It's a gray area. I mean, little Toby, he could kill like 50 people now over the course of his lifetime. He's tasted blood. Who knows what he's capable of now? They probably literally tasted blood at this point. They probably got bored with killing and have moved on to more ways to satisfy their urges and... So yeah, they've tasted blood in uh in more sense uh, than one. <laughs> uh, so maybe that was their final picnic. They they feasted on the flesh. 
Oh, I mean, don't don't uh, you know sell them short. It's probably not just one picnic. I'm sure they've learned how to you know turn these bodies and blood and various parts of the human anatomy into many different courses. It won't just be one picnic. It'll be a few. <laughs> okay, well, we're at about an hour and a half on this episode, and that's actually much longer than I thought we were going to go on this movie, because it's really only an 80-minute movie, and there's only like six <laughs> scenes in the movie. Now, granted, those are, you know, scenes of torture and uh, mutilation and threats and violence, but still, it's a short movie. I didn't think we'd have this much to unpack. So i just giving you one more chance, Rob, as, again, the preeminent fortress scholar in the United States. Is there anything else you'd like to leave us with before we sign off here? Just that, you know, if somehow anyone who hasn't seen this movie has made it to this point, we have not actually done this justice. The visuals of so many aspects of this are half the battle, as it, you know, as they say. So um, if this absolute bizarreness uh, has intrigued you at all, definitely actually watch the movie because um, us two describing it, you know, as long as we spent on it, it won't do it justice to be able to actually see this insanity play out on screen. Yeah, in fact, show it to your kids. It's a great kids movie. Yeah, as long as they're at least four years old, they're clearly old enough for it. So, yeah, go for it. <laughs> Again, Rob, I just want to thank you for stopping by. Um, this is one of those episodes I was really looking forward to talking about. And uh, again, as I said earlier, it's it's really this is the episode that puts puts the concept of staff picks to the test. Like because I'm, it's my job to bring obscure movies to you and movies you might not have ever seen before or heard of, and maybe you'll seek them out and give them a chance. So that's the thing. If this movie sounds the slightest bit appealing to you, if you uh, just think it's so bizarre you can't possibly believe a movie like this can exist, just take it from Rob and me. It does exist. We can attest to it. We sat through it, and, and we're overjoyed that we had a chance to share it with you. Yeah, and if the obscure movie concept doesn't wind up panning out, then uh, that's Mario's fault, so blame him for that. <laughs> yeah, and to make up for that, the next movie we'll be featuring on Staff Picks is Galaxy Quest, which is a movie that everybody seems to know, just to make up for the fact that I pulled uh, this movie so far out of my butt on this episode. Yeah, that's right. You got at least going a little cheerier with that one. I mean, probably wouldn't have been... <laughs> you, you would have had to go with, like, Henry or something to get really much more bleak than this. So, yeah, this is going to be a very... Uh, a neck-snapping tonal shift between this and Galaxy Quest. And again, this is Staff Picks. My name is Mario Lanza. If you have any feedback, comments, uh, if you listened to this episode and went and watched Fortress and you loved it, you want to tell me about it, please drop me a line at staffpickspodcast at gmail.com or you can reach me at Twitter at Mario J. Lanza. And until the next time I talk to you, I will be out there searching for more underrated, underloved movies that hopefully feature five-year-olds stabbing a man and pulling his heart out. I'll talk to you guys later. Bye. Hope she gives us lots of spuds.